If Murray had supported the show, I'd be less sick of podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> America's first. Blubbity Blah. The Blubbity Blah. Sending out good vibes. Blubbity Blah. Good vibes. Blubbity Blah. Good vibes. Good vibes. Good vibes. Underneath breaths of deep gratitude and prayers for guidance and protection. And put on a didgeridoo and shamanic drumming track. Shivers or vibrations and stuff like that. It's not the Stratford man. You know, he had nothing to do with it. It was put upon him. He was dead. He had he knew nothing about this. Um, he was involved in the theater, yes, but as in the financial way. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Grammaric Show. We are going to be chatting with Catherine Children a little bit later, author of Shakespeare Suppressed, The Uncensored Truth About Shakespeare and His Works. Of course, she, I don't think she comes to a different conclusion than the Bacon one. I don't know that we've come to the Bacon conclusion here, but I, my personal is that it was like early, the first MI6 project, whatever the predecessor of what became the British secret, whatever the fuck. Anyway, we got Graham coming in as well from Spokane, or not from Spokane, from Soap Lake. Yeah. Hey, Just buddy. finished up the second week's tour. I'm on my laptop, so check, you know, I might not be having the best audio and I might be tapping and and th- tapping things and I'm going to try, I'm working off my laptop, so I got a bunch of different screens I got to scroll to, so I'm trying to be good. Yeah, this is a great episode, dude. I, I'm, I think she sold me on her theory. I think I'm, I'm with her on that. It well, seems pretty solid. You think so? You're so yeah. um, malleable. Uh, no, dude. I'm no. just look at the. I just follow the data. No, <laughs> <laughs> I do for the most part. Hey, but you no. get to come home with no hassle. But the thing is, I got to challenge her on uh, on like this the stuff that was in Manly P. Hall's uh, All Seeing Eye. I read all those articles on Bacon and Shakespeare because they were talking about it a hundred years ago. Do you believe that? A hundred years, over a hundred years ago, they were talking about Bacon and Shakespeare. And there is a bunch of... Um, she doesn't think it's Bacon, though. No, I, no, I know. But she she kind of, she do, she doesn't like the, um, what do you call it when you, the cipher stuff, right? I mean, these are all ciphers that, the, that they're coming up with. And she just likes, ah, the ciphers, they're not proof, you know. The ciphers. Yeah. We got to have, did you, did you get a hold of Alan? No, I don't. he's not answering my texts. Huh? Did you say? But you said. I said it was me from Gramerica. I mean, what you know? I mean, if he doesn't huh. know me by this, well, if you're not in his on. contacts, it might well, <clears throat> explain his phone differently. Huh? It might be my phone number. I it's thought he gave it's me a, a specific email to email him on. Anyways, we do talk about Alan Green a little bit in this episode too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Anyway, we should have Alan on again. It'll be fun. But yeah. uh, it's a good chance. So how was your – you've now done two full weeks down. Everyone's gone. You've had the Snake Bros come through, Ben, Dave, Brandon, Randall, Bradley. a whole bunch. Bradley, did you have a fun yeah. time? Yeah, it was good. Yeah, it was awesome. Do you have a little more respect for the work I do after two weeks of having to juggle the ball? I've been do- I think I've done more of these than you, dude. 
What? So, I don't know. I've done more. I don't know what you're talking about. You've done more than me now. All of a sudden, <laughs> body goes to two without me. I've done more than you. You went well. You did great. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I'm starting to wrap my head around Randall's work in this area too. After being with him and Bradley for a couple of weeks, um, and being down here a few times now, it's pretty astounding. It really is amazing. The, the these places that we go to are just they're mind blowing. Seeing him in person, the photos don't do it justice, but. Seeing him in person and hearing Randall talk about the floods coming through and all the evidence that he has, the suite of evidence that he has against the mainstream narrative is, is pretty cool. Back-to-back must have been something. It must have really hammered at home. Yeah, it, yeah, that's probably what it I've was. I've never done that. And driving both times, probably, because the uh, other time I wasn't... Oh, I was driving. Yeah. So that doesn't make sense. But maybe driving back-to-back made a big difference. Well, Anyways, and of course, great groups of people. I mean, the fanta- fantastic people, awesome conversations with everybody. I mean, Randall loves being the teacher, and everybody's there to learn, so it's it's fantastic. That is great. So another two successful CACs, we can call it two successes. Yep, contacted the cabin. Yep, nobody got killed. People were asking about other events, other events. You know. Yeah, yeah, so, I got a lot of yeah. people kicking so got- tires on Utah. A lot That's of people, I mean, Shasta about. is over 50% uh, sold at this point. So if people want to get in on that Magic on the Mountain event over in Shasta, they do, are you going to want to make uh, a deposit on that sooner than later? There's only like a couple single beds left. Those are like almost all gone. Maybe there's four left. So contact at thecabin.com. All those events, the Scablands for next May is already 50, like closing in on 50%. That Montana for next year was going fast. So all that stuff. I've been stuffed up, probably from cleaning this dusty old, dingy old basement. Yep. Stirring up all that shit. So what now you're on an adventure, right? You're going to go fly into the eye of the storm. I did not know what the fuck you were talking about when you kept saying Ian the other day. I was like, who the fuck is Ian? What is he talking about? Is it someone on the trip? Is it like, because I know we both know an Ian, and you're like, Ian's fucking with my shit. And I was like, I know, me too. <laughs> but it's a storm. So when is the storm over? I, I haven't, I got to check it all out, man. I haven't had, I really just haven't had time to even like touch the ground here. Um, and, and sort of get back to work, regular Great American stuff. And so but, I don't know. I have I got to look into it. Should be okay, I think. Should have settled down. So you're going to fly and, right to the coast? Right to the coast of South Carolina. Nice. What are you going to do? Spend a couple of days there with Salvatore and Peter, if Peter can make it. Then we're going to meet you. You're going to meet me. Brandon. You're going to meet me in... Uh... Charlotte, 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 yeah. North Carolina, yeah. head up to Virginia with uh, Brad and Powell and Mike, also Mike, our friend Liberal Mike, used to be Liberal Mike. So it'll be a little meetup almost in a way too, and we're going to have some awesome interviewing, I think, yeah, it should work out really interesting. Oh yeah, we're going to have a time over at Sky Pirate Ranch, maybe be there for the authentic- authentication, authentication of uh, the parachute used by D.B. Cooper 
I mean, I think we're on to something here. It's going to be great. We're going to have a great couple of days recording. Either way, we're going to get some video for the YouTube channel. We got a strike, eh? So. Oh, yeah. The I last was episode what, didn't what happened? What happened? I think it wasn't it was the, the last episode. It no, was an episode no. from a while ago. But it doesn't let you post while you're on a strike. What? So the last episode didn't go to YouTube because it was, it was during the strike period. Oh. I think it was the Tom Palladino episode. Yeah, it was. It was the scalar healing. I think maybe we pushed back against the jabs and COVID and stuff. I mean, but I just don't understand why it takes so long. And it corresponded with Russell Brand and a bunch of other people, I think, other people getting strikes for community guidelines and misinformation, which means maybe correct information. I mean, maybe that gives that, that episode some more credibility. Well, people, I think it's number 557 if people want to go check that out. Like you can get it everywhere but YouTube. They don't tell you the specifics, right? No. And then why does why do they wait so long to analyze it? Is that how long the AI takes? It's been a couple months old, isn't it? Uh, I don't know. I, I And then you went know. and got yourself kicked off of Facebook? I mean, yours is a little I, more I got intentional. Of you're calling people names and stuff. I mean, you're like, that's real, like, you know. Hate speech. Hate speech. I'm hate speech. I don't think hate speech would be a thing anymore. Even if you spell those hated words yeah, wrong, I, it's you know what? hate I, speech. I think I found a loophole. If you leave out the vowels. Leave out the vowels. I'm sure people have figured that out before then. I mean, that's well, yeah, people figure it out, but I don't think the algos get you. It works on Twitter. Mm. It works on Twitter. I don't know if it works on Facebook because I got a seven-dayer this time. I think the next one's a 30. What a crazy world we live in. It's so insane. This uh, The guests that we just have coming up on Outlawed, we're going to talk. Uh, uh, the Outlawed show probably would have just come out a couple days before. That's our other podcast. Um, Susie... Olson Corgan, uh, she's been a sort of a vaccine advocate, not an advocate for, but uh, that that probably won't get us canceled. So I'm going to say she's a she's on our side with the jabs because she has an injured son that happened. And I was talking to another lady here on this trip who has an injured son, like really injured. These two ladies have very very injured sons. And I think what happens is they wake up the wrong people. But Susie's got her whole link tree taken down. And she's just out there with a bunch of organizations trying to bring awareness to the uh, other side of this issue. And she just gets censored. What's the link tree again? It's censored. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a bunch of link, Like in her Instagram, she has the link to the link tree, which shows all the links to all the st- organizations and the websites she belongs to. It's almost like a, an email uh signature with all the stuff you know but it's it's a separate sort of website i think i'm shadow banned on instagram <laughs> you personally yes yeah i know i'm telling you this is what happens i had a bunch of people tell me that they were trying to find me and they're like yeah they can, even if yeah, they put in can. my exact username i don't yeah. come out no i think you have to put the underscore at the end i tried to find it too i was like I, how come i can't find darren he's been liking my stuff because darren's got his own instagram account now and i've i run the grimerical one for the most part except for darren stepping on my toes through his facebook but I can't do that anymore. When he gets when he gets suspended, when he goes to Facebook jail, I I get I go free on Instagram without his stepping on. My I toes. stop posting on your shit. I know. So he created his own account, and um, where was I going? Because you can't handle my shit. 
And uh, just saying. Oh yeah, I was looking for you. I was trying to show. You can't I think handle it was, my shit. <laughs> I think it was my mom. I was trying to show my mom your account, and I couldn't search. I'm like, I couldn't find you, even though you're in my. I follow you. You follow me, and I had to put the last underscore after your second name. Yes. Had to come up. Otherwise, I think you get the British Darren Grimes. You have to type in. You get. There's a whole thing. bunch of Darren Grimes. I'm not a whole bunch. Uh, I'm going to keep my hate speech to a minimum this week. But here's the thing. Nothing. I'm not getting into it this week. I'm not getting into it this week. Anyway, are you going to do an oppo? <laughs> yeah, let's, <laughs> let's, let's transition to this project operation. Because it's come transition. up. Uh, it's a very recent one. I, I want to... Uh, I want to talk about it just real quickly. What's that noise? It looks military to me. Definitely military. Probably classified too. Dish fire. Prism. Sentry Eagle. Sigma. Mannerkin. Artichoke. MK Ultra. Operation Project. Project Operation. So this isn't like a secret one or anything like that. Um, it never is. What? It has, don't oh, you yeah, sure they, like, of course they are sometimes. It used to be. It used to be. All right, what you got? Um, I, I got to go back a step. I lost it. So this is um, Project Icebreaker. Have you heard of it? Uh, no. Now, this isn't the Operation Icebreaker that I must have talked about probably a couple of years ago. This is Project Icebreaker. What's and the difference between Operation Icebreaker and, or Icebreaker and Project Icebreaker? I, I can't remember. I don't know. Well, they're completely different projects. I mean, they're completely different. But I can't remember what the difference between the name is between Project and Operation. But this is to test immediate cross-border retail CBDC payments. So they're, they're creating this project. So, I mean, why they call it, the, like, this is what I'm saying, right? All these corporations and these big NGOs and companies are calling things projects and operations now. Maybe because they sound cool. I mean. Cool beans. The, the Bank for International Settlements and three individual central banks have teamed up to explore how central bank digital currencies. So that's when you hear CBDCs, it's central bank digital currencies. And how these can be used to enable immediate international retail and remittance payments. So they're basically <laughs> testing this for cross-border stuff. A project that constitutes one of the first experiments globally in testing the possibilities of cross-border retail CBDCs. So it involves the BIS Innovation Hub Nordics Center working alongside with the banks of Israel, Norway, and Sweden to, set, to test some specific key functions and the technological feasibility of interlinking domestic CBDC systems. So it's going to run till the end of the year. And then they also talk about um, they're looking for valuable lessons, they say. Um, they're going to publish a final report on the project in the first quarter of 2023. Um, they've already done some preliminary stuff that I won't get into but I think what they're I think what they're trying to figure out is how this digital currency will work across borders, obviously, right? I don't know, like for tax purposes or whatever, or if they're gonna use uh seventy five thousand or eighty four thousand new employees that the US is gonna 
Trained with, trained with AR-15s. Yeah. I went to the, Egypt now too, right? Towards the holy grail of cross-border payments. Oof. There was a project Jura in the wholesale CBD, CBDC space. Um, project Jura was... I'm just gonna go that, right that was an accident. Um, that one is about DLT-enabled wholesale and expected to make a significant contribution towards laying the foundations for possible wholesale adoption. So getting ready so, for one world currency? Yeah. <laughs> Fine. Both central, but we are still at the beginning. Both central banks involved Project Jura being among the highest profile, certainly within Europe, in respect of their CBDC experimentation. So, yeah, I'll put links in the show notes. Um, just interesting stuff to keep an eye on the official. This is the official narrative of what they're doing with these uh, CBDCs. You know, that's why I think they kind of overplayed their hand against the the convoy, you know? like, Isn't it funny that seven months ago we were, like, uh, arresting protesters and freezing bank accounts, and then today we're just like, eh, it's fine. Yeah. What changed okay. in the we're science? Gonna... What changed in the science? Or was it just politics? Huh? Are you done? Well, speaking of that, yeah, it is nice that we finally did let go of our restrictions in Canada. You can come home without hassle-free. It's now, do you know that the Arrive Can has like 650,000 reviews? Most, <laughs> Never of, them, that. most of them five-star? We, we might have looked at that in this episode, that episode for a lot I was talking about when we recorded with that. Oh, so did it? Yeah, yeah. We did look at it. At it was point. only at like 490 then, though. It's gone up another 150,000. Oh, it's, it's just unbelievable. What an amazing it, it's all just. It's all just... It's all just a big scam. The reviews on the movies are a scam. The reviews on the, the government apps are a scam. You know, it's just all one big. The Truman Show, thing. baby. But the quote I have will oh, you uh, have help you. Now? Help now you, have you a quote. I'm not playing. It wasn't the quote. Jingle. Well, you, okay. Do you want to go jingle? No, go ahead. Bingo, bingo. Social media jingle. Don't forget to rate, comment, and or subscribe to the Grime America newsletter. Bingo, bingo. We got one on the YouTube here. We got one on Damien Eccles from Dub Siren. I listen to Damien a lot, podcast interviews and teachings. Every single time I hear him talk, I learn something new. And often not just one thing, but multiple things, and often new concepts. Whatever happened with that, wow, that dude. murder thing? Nothing, right? I don't know. They were gonna come, he was going to come back on the show, or their PR um, guys got a, a hold. Actually, we were going to have their PR our guys on the show. Um um, but then um, things heated up in the court thing or whatever, and he had, I think he had to take a break from the stuff. But I think that's all sort of it was moving forward on that whole thing. But. On number 563, Four Arrows and Darcia Narvez, I totally get the towel slash safety blanket thing. I've got a big wool jacket that I call my trip jacket because I never trip without. It's so big and cozy I can be comfortable anywhere my trip takes me. 
I just want that every day. Do you want to get you? I love the soft. I love the soft stuff now for some reason. My, do you want to get you a trip towel for uh, Christmas? Just for for hanging out at home, working. For um, you gotta get out more. <laughs> Uh, here we go on Atlantis in the Azores with Randall Carlson. I deduced back in the 1970s that Atlantis was in near at the Azores or at the Azores. He didn't say, or I'm throwing that in or at the Azores after reading a book about Edgar Casey's life. I also figured out what my dad called the tectonic plates after looking at it lit from the inside globe my dad had and looking at the outlines of Western Africa and Eastern South America. Not that I'm brilliant, but these things just made sense to me at a young age. I love listening to Mr. Carlson tell us about ancient geological history. Uh, On that same episode from Pamela Homeyer, Plato talks about the size of the government of Atlantis being huge, but that is not the location of Atlantis, and that does not imply that is at all contiguous. Contiguous? Contiguous? Contiguous, Uh, On why our solar system is not geometrically possible. Sounds like a total bunch of shit. I won't believe any of this. What was that from? What was that from? <laughs> from Winder. From the Tycho's what? Which one was that from? <laughs> it's on why our solar system is not just, so yeah, it's the Tycho's, the Tycho small. <laughs> from Windsor Swan. Sounds like a total bunch of shit. I won't believe any of this unless Randall Carlson endorses it. <laughs> Lots of Randall today. All the Randall you can handle today. All the Randall you can handle. Uh, what do we got here? Uh, do you know Randall? Randall's been looking at. It. I was bugging Randall this week to 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 look at it again. We Tycho's dot space came up a lot. Me and Russ were arguing about it. Russ and Kyle haven't quite bought it yet. Haven't quite bought it. Yeah, well, it's not cool. No, maybe. How, well, what? I would be quite interested in their opinion. I respect it greatly. Yeah, they they just if those guys were in on it, I'd be like, huh. Yeah, we're talking about the Brothers of the Serpent. Just for I'm agnostic. Because I just don't care. It's not that I don't <laughs> care. Okay, okay. It's not that I don't care. I just, you know, it's lower on the it list of things I care about. It doesn't right? matter that much to my daily about, life. Yeah. The world is possibly crashing and burning, you know, around me. So, you know, I, you know in my free time, it's fun to ponder, but it, I, I don't see how can it can affect my immediate circumstance well i mean if it's because it has a lot of implications if if uh, just like all the scientific paradigms right if they're wrong but i already believe in a higher power because i think that's the biggest implication Ah, it's hard not to fucking believe that something's going on there if earth's at the middle of it well yeah but the Earth just happens to be the middle. Just happens. It just special. happens. It just happens to be the planet. With it's the it's going around the, the very center. It's not really the middle. But, it's just the inner planet. Hmm. Well, they used to say that back in the day. <laughs> I don't think Russ and Kyle like the, uh, the that exact connotation. About, no, no, they it, don't like the conspiracy about Kepler and and, uh, and Tycho's that part of it. Okay, on number five sixty five. No, let's not do that one. 
Okay, number 564, Linda Yale Schiller, PTS Dreams. Um, Catastrophic New England. Last night in a dream, I was in a group of strangers somewhere nondescript. A good song was playing that I did not know. Within that song were parts of the Grimerica intro. I was excited and exclaimed out loud, Whoa, Grimerica sampled this song I never knew. Some guy across the room gave me a thumbs up because he noticed too. Huh. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks, guys. Do you want your quote now? You want to do your quote? Sure. Thanks for the social media stuff. It was mostly just YouTube. Yeah. I'm kicked off Facebook right now. We should do one. We should do a chat one. Uh, oh, we should talk about our chats, actually, right? Oh, yeah. The Discord's back up. Didn't we, didn't yeah. we already talk about that? I won't partake yeah. in the Discord. Are you in the Discord right. again? I, I am parta- I'm participating in there, yes. Is there a bunch I'm, of people uh, in it already? I had Ryan add a, an AI art uh, generator in there to play around with it. For what? Nothing. Just to play around with it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's pretty cool, dude. I was learning from uh, Jason cool. on the trip here. What? Sounds pretty cool. It's f- fucking amazing, actually. Amazing. It is. Does it's, it make you dude, cry? Dude, I'm telling you. Not yet. <sighs> <laughs> it's the profound quote of the week. Darren, can you guess it? It's the profound quote of Yes. Okay. Okay. I'm reading. I'm reading now. I have to read all three of these because they're all they're all cool and they're all like the short, very short. Okay. All the same guy. No, they're not. These are all different guys. Okay. The Rapid first one. Fire. What? Rapid fire. Yeah. When you arise in the morning, think of what a privilege it is to be alive, to think, to enjoy, to love. Marcus Aurelius. Good one. Was that right? Yeah. Yes. How'd you know? Well, I've read meditations. Okay. Next one. At any moment, you have a choice that either leads you closer to your spirit or further away from it. Eckhart Tolle. Close. Tick not Han. That's not close. I don't even know who <laughs> Tick Han is. <laughs> I appreciate your optimism. <laughs> He'd be a great coach. The most beautiful, okay, the next one. The most beautiful experience we can have is the mysterious, the fundamental emotion which stands at the cradle of true art and true science. Mm, Carl Sagan. Close. Try again. Similar kind of thing. A little older. A little older? Yeah. Um. I don't know. Albert Einstein. Ah, oh, son of a bitch. Huh, well, I got one. I'm happy with that. One of three, shooting 33%. Yeah, that's pretty good, yeah. The best baseball players strike out two-thirds of the time. All right, so that's it. Uh, yeah. I'll let you get to your dinner. We do need support. Catherine? We do I need support. Grimerica.ca slash support. If you can when you get if you blah, blah, blah. if you can when you can guys if you are getting a little value from our little podcast here, which you now do five hundred almost seventy episodes coming at you for free, no paywalls no nothing. Grimerica.ca/support sign up today monthly you can do a monthly one time donation you decide. Check out our audio books our tours 
our other podcast, Great America Outlawed, where we get a little more controversial. We've definitely been doing uh, a little more trans stuff over there lately, kind of looking at that whole agenda. So if you're into that kind of stuff, GreatAmericaOutlawed.ca, you can check out, there's a little menu. If you go to GreatAmerica.ca, there's a menu on the top that'll take you to everything we do. And uh, we'd love if you did that. So yeah, give us that bio there, bio guy. So Catherine Children is an independent scholar who studied the Shakespeare authorship question for over 30 years. She's debated the topic with English professors in the Smithsonian Institution and at the Mechanics Institute Library in San Francisco. She's written several articles for Shakespeare Oxford newsletter and served as its editor for two years. She's currently the research grant committee for the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship and a board member of the Shakespeare Authorship Coalition. So she's given talks, of course, in numerous numerous, uh, public libraries and universities and stuff. She's a frequent guest on a bunch of shows. She's a graduate of UCLA in history. And uh, I'm not going to read this other stuff because she talks about it in the the episode. But her book is, um, uh, let's see here, where's her latest book? It's called The Shakespeare Suppressed. Shakespeare suppressed, yeah, yeah, the uncensored truth about Shakespeare and his works, which is something a thread we've been pulling on for you know since episode two hundred and some, two hundred and fourteen maybe somewhere yeah. back there was the first time we sort of cracked into this Shakespeare thing. So I want to mention something else too. She received an award for distinguished scholarship at Concordia University in Portland for the Shakespeare suppressed. All right, it's guys. pretty cool. Yeah, it's, it's a good book. All right, guys. Enjoy the chat with Catherine Children. Catherine Children, welcome to Grand America. Thanks for joining us. So good to be here. This will be fun. We've done a couple on Shakespeare. I gotta warn you, like I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm a little rusty on this. Like I'm, it's, it's been, it's taken years to wrap our heads around this. You know, it's one of those things where, at first, you're like, no, this, this can't be. And then after years of sort of it coming across it now and then, kind of starting to open up a little bit. But it's, uh, you know, I was never a Shakespeare fan when I was young. So this is all kind of kind of new. But your book is uh, quite the resource. Thank you for sending it over. It's quite the quite the, the Bible on, on this controversy. Thank you. 
how did how did you like you've been studying this for decades right how did you how did yes. you end up how did you go down this path and not like the professor path you know where everybody sort of still just defends this mainstream narrative on shakespeare I'd like to also clarify that I was all in on the Shakespeare conspiracy right from the first time Alan Green explained it. I didn't need any coaxing. I was like, that makes perfect sense. Yes. Yes. I've, I've, I know, I know about Alan Green. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was wondering if you'd have some thoughts on some of our past guests about this, this topic, because I feel like you've got a bit of a different take on it. Yeah, I believe he was um, giving a certain take on the relationship to, between Shakespeare and uh, the fair youth, if I'm not mistaken. Well, the main thing he was doing when he came on here was like, especially the first time, was he just sort of spun together like all the different languages and the fact that Shakespeare, you know, the dude only wrote his da- name down one time in like all of history or something. Like that. And I'm just like paraphrasing here. I'm not the the guy, but there was, there was just a few things. And then, you know, I'm of the belief now that that fucking MI6 just wrote the shit. So, um, and it just makes perfect sense to me. The first time Alan laid it out. I was just like, yeah, that makes total sense. Way more sense than some dude writing all these plays, but we've never, you know, seen him or never wrote anything else. He never wrote anything else. Well, what got me into it was watching a debate on television, and it was between a Shakespeare professor from a very prominent university and uh, a man who wrote a book about the Earl of Oxford being the great author. And... I knew nothing about this, okay? I was a history major, um, but outside of that, I knew nothing about, about the Shakespeare controversy. And Charlton Ogburn made point after point after point that made sense. Yeah. And the Shakespeare professor, in defense of his own man, the, you know, the man born from Stratford-on-Avon, he, he couldn't come up with anything, no facts. It was totally unbalanced. And so that that's why I read Charlton Ogburn's book, The Mysterious William Shakespeare, which is a great classic. I think it was published in 1984. And I have been bitten by the bug ever since. I've been wanting to tell everybody about it because Shakespeare is such a titan of Western civilization. And I think millions of people love his works and his characters and they need to know who he really was and to have a a true biography to work with right now if you ask any you know anybody you meet uh, what do you know about william shakespeare most of them are just going to kind of pull a blank and say to be or not to be or yeah they might say (laughs) that they might say romeo and juliet they might say oh he was an actor my favorite (laughs) <laughs> My favorite Shakespeare was the Gilligan's Island one. <laughs> did they do one? They did one where they found, I forget what happened. They found the books or something. So, of course, they put on this whole play. And uh, oh. by then, they must have been, like, running out of things to do on the island. But uh, <laughs> it was. I still remember all the songs they were singing, like, to this day. I watched that shit when I was, like, eight years old, probably. Whoa, That's, like, yeah, where I, I learned Shakespeare, that. probably. That's where oh, yeah. I learned Shakespeare was from Gilligan's <laughs> Island. Well, thank you, Gilligan. Yeah. <laughs> but, so, yeah. What, what was it like then? Figure like going down that beginning of that sort of rabbit hole, or or sort of teasing teasing all that apart. Um. Well, you know, I I just got so interested in the Earl of Oxford's life that I was pretty much 
focusing on that. And then one day, another TV show, a prominent Shakespeare professor was being interviewed. And somebody called in, it was a three-hour interview, and somebody called in and asked him, what do you think of the authorship question? And, well, his he totally, like, his face changed, and he kind of, you know, got that look in his eye. Um, and he said, oh, those people, you know, they think that Queen Elizabeth wrote the works, you know, and just a very disdainful attitude. And I thought to myself, I've been studying this for, at that point, maybe 15 years I'm, I'm, I'm an intelligent person, relatively, um, and I see a problem. How, how is he so confident in his own man? And that's when I took a deep dive into the supposed author, the man born in Stratford-upon-Avon. And that's where, right away, and I didn't really realize it until I did this deep dive, is that all the evidence they have in support of him as being the great author was posthumous after he died evidence not during his lifetime it's clearly that way there is no lifetime evidence for the Stratford man uh, if you look at the case for the Earl of Oxford there's a huge amount of circumstantial evidence while he was alive that certainly points to him being the great author including him being known as a playwright and known to write anonymously and yet we don't have any of his plays that he wrote with his name on them and of course our movement we believe that they are the shakespeare plays oh i see where does that other guy come in jim um what was his name there jim or um what about bacon i'm just looking through my notes well we'll get to bacon in a while let's stick to to her theories and stuff first you mentioned in your book quite a bit there there's the the earl and and jim what's his name jim uh jim or jan i can't find the notes um yeah i'll take a i'll take a sec was he wasn't he partnering with somebody or wasn't he the not necessarily the author but the guy that sort of like pub, uh produced it or published it um well, you mean uh, the first folio? Yes. Book yes. of Shakespeare plays? Yes. yes, sorry, that's what I meant. Yeah. Yes, that one, um, that came out after the Stratford Man died, you know, the supposed Shakespeare, seven years after his death. And that was a book of 36 Shakespeare plays. And the opening pages, the preface, about 15 or 16 pages, and it's in these pages two references that point us to stratford upon avon right and um the first one is a poem to shakespeare where um ben johnson that's the guy ben johnson, johnson. The guy okay. thinking of. yeah yeah he refers, ben. he refers to shakespeare as sweet swan of avon now back then swan was another term for poet so poet of avon right and then Another man in another poem of a couple pages later um, refers to Shakespeare's Stratford Monument. So Avon on one page, Stratford on another. People naturally put the two together and said, hey, I guess Shakespeare uh, came, the great Shakespeare came from Stratford on Avon. And it was from that point on, very soon after, people started going there because they wanted to see the Stratford Monument. And um, 
what they saw was actually something different. And uh, you opened my book. Maybe you um, have the page where it shows the two, the monument, today's monument um, versus the, uh, a drawing of the monument made shortly after it was erected. And they are two different people. <laughs> um, today's monument uh, it shows the effigy of a man with an upturned mustache and a goatee. And today's monument, uh, the the first original drawing of the monument in 1634. He has a full beard and a down downturned mustache. That's that's just one example. Um, the original drawing showed a man holding a sack, whereas today's monument is a man holding a pen and paper on a pillow. So, so which one are you going to believe the, the today's monument or a very early drawing of the monument? Um, the Shakespeare professor will say, oh, the person doing the drawing in 1634, they got it wrong. You know, <laughs> um, that, that, that can't be the case uh, because uh, a very respected um, a drawer uh, and person of antiquities, William Dugdale, he featured uh, an improved drawing, of, uh, an improved engraving of that drawing in his book. And William Dugdale was very respected, and he also got a knighthood. So um, he was, you know, his his picture had to have been valid based on that. So, it, and there's clear evidence that the monument actually was changed. So there's a lot of funny business around the monument, and yet the, the monument is one of the primary pieces of evidence that the, the Shakespeare professor will tell you that he was the Stratford man. Do we and know so when say, it was changed? Do you know? Do we know when they changed it? Uh, there are records showing that the area where it occurs, they call it the chancel area of the church, um, in 1649, there were changes done. And then 100 years later, there were more changes done. There's quite a few instances. And even the professor will admit that um, at one point, today's uh, monument figure um, was originally um, had colors, and then it got whitewashed. Somebody actually put a you know white paint on it and just made it all white. Then they brought it back. So it there's been a lot of tampering on the monument. Um, but that's that's a whole book in itself. Um, but that's their primary piece of evidence. Um, the problem is they don't have any lifetime evidence for the Stratford man. Right. And that's what you need. You need, if you read the plays, you can see that the great author had a huge amount of education. He, he knew ancient Greek. He knew Latin. He knew Italian. He knew French. He knew astronomy. He knew botany. He knew the law. He knew the Bible. Uh, you name it, he, he he knew it, and he used terms that were correct. It wasn't like he was just throwing book, book learning at you. He was using metaphors, incorporating this knowledge in a beautiful way. And so this person could not have, like the Stratford man, he could not have learned ancient Greek from the local grammar school, which is what where they think he went. They think he had uh, schooling up until age 13 even though there's zero evidence of it. Um, so this was a person who went to university for sure. Um, the great author knew rhetoric, and that was only taught at the university. Um, so 
you know, that's a, another huge mark against the Stratford man. The Stratford man also was born into an illiterate family. Both of his parents, you know, could not read and write. We only have, for the, the Stratford man's father, he signed with an X. He couldn't write his name, you know. As far as we know, the Stratford man himself was illiterate. We have no letters or anything in his handwriting besides uh, three signatures on his will and three signatures on three other legal documents. That's it. But there's no evidence that he wrote a letter to anybody. And yet we have thousands of records and letters and documents, even manuscripts um, from other writer, writers um, that they have left behind. So it's just unfathomable that a man who wrote at least 40 plays, hundreds, uh, 150 sonnets, a law, uh, two long poems didn't leave behind one scrap. So um, it just it just gets more and more unbelievable for the Stratford man. Do you, do you have any questions, Darren? No, go ahead. Do you? What's the reason for the like the cover up? It seems it seems now so obvious. The more I read about this, it seems like there's a whole movement. Like you said, there's a movement of people that are sort of pushing back against this. What, what's the reason for the? Are they just stuck in this paradigm like a lot of other sciences where the evidence is way past where their paradigm is and it takes a long time to catch up? Or what is it? Or is yeah. it intentional? Or well, you know, I, honestly, I, I sometimes I just don't know. I think it's a combination of both. I think that um, English professors are wanting to protect their. Output, you know, they've written biographies, they've written bi uh, articles, you know, all sorts of things. And when they, when it finally comes to be accepted that the great author was using a pen name, William Shakespeare, that he was somebody else, it's going to invalidate not all of their work, but a good deal of their work is going to be wrong. And they're going to go down being somebody who got fooled. Maybe that's it. Maybe they're trying to protect the reputation of their departments. Um, maybe they're just ignorant of their own, of the Stratford man's evidence. It, it, maybe that's the case as well. Um, yeah. 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 They're in the, they're stuck in the paradigm when they, they, they grew up in the same paradigm too. So, and then you have the Shakespeare birthplace trust, which is kind of, you know, the headquarters of Shakespeare in England and, um, an organization, uh, put, put it to them offering a 40,000 pound reward to prove their case that the Stratford man was the great author, you know, to show us beyond reasonable doubt. They couldn't, they didn't accept it. And yet they're a licensed charity. In a way they, they would have to accept it, but they didn't they, because they know, I think they do know that there is no evidence. Um, maybe they just like the romance of, you know, somebody just, coming out of nowhere and being able to write the greatest works in the universe. But, but the problem is, is that's not going to help our appreciation of Shakespeare at all. When we finally have a real biography to match against the work, it's, it's going to bring them to life. Right. Exactly. We're going to understand the motivation behind Othello, for example, uh, three or four plays Shakespeare plays dealt with, a husband or a fiance 
learning that his wife or girlfriend was unfaithful. And without confronting her or asking about it, he just goes crazy and drops her. And, you know, it ends up in tragedy. And that is exactly what happened with the Earl of Oxford, Edward de Vere, 17th Earl of Oxford. He took a grand tour of Europe, uh, spent the most amount of time in Italy. By, and by the way, many Shakespeare plays are set in Italy. And anyway, uh, he was there about six, 16 months or so. And on his way back, somebody told him that there was a question about his daughter's birth. You know, was it really his own daughter? And whoever told him it was convincing enough to him for him to not see his wife for five years. He just completely, he was so incensed, he didn't even want to see her. He eventually got back together with her, but, you know, a lot of time had passed. And he may have, in the end, felt guilty for doing that to her. And she died young, kind of like Ophelia died young. The Earl of Oxford's life is very much like Hamlet's uh, life. So, I mean, these are just a couple examples. It's chock full of examples of parallels. He was inserting in many of the plays his life story, especially the sonnets, the Shakespeare sonnets. You know, those are written in the first person and they, you know, they tell a different story than what you're told about Shakespeare. Do you think he was in MI6? Was he in MI6? Well, was MI6 still around back then? Well, I think this is when it started. This was their first big gig with Shakespeare. And it was a group it, it was a group of them, you know, and they were all chipping in. And uh but I honestly, here's the problem. I haven't read enough Shakespeare to really know what's in there to see, you know, what they were trying to get across or why. But someone we had someone on. It wasn't uh Alan Green. It wasn't Alan. It was someone else. Robert Frederick. It was Robert Frederick. That's who it was, where we were talking about, uh, and I can't remember what exactly was said, but I think Robert had like a little gang of people together, didn't he? I'll have to look up the show notes, but yeah, <laughs> I, it's it because it, it, I it's think all, it all gets pretty confusing. Yeah, me, I think the Robert one ended. That's you know where it was really starting to seem like that could have been sort of MI six, and I think I thought Robert had like a reason for it why why they did it, but I I can't remember what that is. It might have been just been to make it so that the no, I can't remember. I'd just be making shit up. Well. <laughs> Well, to me, the why of it was political. Um, the Earl of Oxford, he was Queen Elizabeth's, uh, one, you know, one of her favorites. And he was, knew everybody in the court. Um, and it, he was naturally characterizing some of these people in the court. And one of them was the most powerful man in England, and that was William Cecil, Lord Burley. And uh, he he and many historians admit this that in Hamlet the character Polonius was really based on Lord Burley, and it's not a flattering portrayal. It's more of a lampooning of him, and that he he drops several details that this is Lord Burley. So um, I don't think you know the powers that be 
wouldn't want the world to know the Earl of Oxford was the author because then they're going to do that. They're going to look at some of these characters and say, gee, is that William Cecil, Lord Burley, you know, being shown in an unflattering light? So I think that was part of it. Um, the other part of it, I think, uh, again, was political, that the Shakespeare sonnets tell a story of the fair youth. You know, the fair youth is the young, beautiful young man that he praises over and over in the sonnets. And he praises him in royal terms. And it's my opinion, and, and many, many in our movement, but not everybody, I mean, it's controversial, that the Earl of Oxford, the true Shakespeare, that was his child by Queen Elizabeth. I know it gets a little, sounds a little fantastical, but if you, you can read it in that light. And there, there is some evidence, and I give that in the book, that the um, young man who almost everybody, including Shakespeare professors, believe was the Earl of Southampton, Henry Rosling. Uh, Henry Rosling was regarded as a prince in his young, early days. So there is some evidence to support the idea that he was the queen's child. What about Bacon? Was he? Was there any evidence to support Francis being the queen's child? Queen died um, today. That was an early theory by the Baconians. Um, I, you know, I don't know what their evidence was that he was the queen's child. I, I, I can't say one way or the other, but um, I know that Bacon was not the great author. Um, yeah, I mean, what shocks me is that um, I thought this was all new sort of theories and stuff. So when we've had a couple of people on trying to talk about Bacon being being the author, um, I've got show notes here from Robert Robert that sort of talks about that. That's what he was getting into, Darren. Is is um, but I want to go. I want to talk about Manly P. Hall stuff over a hundred years, or not over a hundred years, around a hundred years ago. He was talking about Bacon being Shakespeare. So I thought this was all fairly new, but like you said, that's an old theory, right? So yeah. anyways, Robert, Robert, we talked about um, the research he's done regarding Bacon and, and Freemasonry in the British Empire and secret societies. So that's probably where Darren's getting sort of the MI6 vibe. Um, okay. And we talk about this synchro that he had when he looked at the book of coincidences and he was opening the page and he, and he came across the Bacon it was the first word he looked at. And he was researching Bacon. Like it was a crazy synchronicity, and it brought brought him down this whole rabbit hole with, with Bacon's muse and Shakespeare and the Empire and the City of London. Um, so we got into all that stuff there. A lot of magic and occultism as well. But when I was reading Manly P. Hall stuff, I mean, I couldn't believe that they were talking about this a um, hundred years ago. So he was saying that uh, even Ignatius Donnelly, apparently, some of their evidence seems quite extraordinary, really. Like, Ignatius Donnelly said, uh, I'm just trying to find the notes here. I keep closing my... I keep it was a lot, a lot about cryptograms. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, let me just see here. Oh, that's I'm in the wrong folder here. Oh, boy. Two seconds. So, he, he Ignatius Donnelly, um, he apparently he extracted the words Francis Bacon wrote the green Marlowe and Shakespeare plays, um, which is weird. But then also there's a whole bunch of these where the pagination is off. There's a whole bunch of these paragraphs that start with like a B um, C O N. Um, and if you do the new, if you'd switch them to numbers, uh, if you switch the, uh, 
them to uh, the numbers to letters, like it comes out with bacon all the time in these paragraphs where the pagination changes. So there does seem to be be some weird cryptographic things. Now I don't know why, like why why bacon would be put in there like that, or if that's just a coincidence. I, I tend to think it's a coincidence, but um, yeah, I I don't put a lot of stock in cryptograms and things like that. Um, I like to go with the lifetime evidence the you know the real evidence and yeah yeah um, it's understandable that the, the er, people in the early movement in the 1850s 60s 70s 80 you know like that over 100 years ago saw bacon because bacon was really super educated and he knew the law and everything and he was connected to the court so it totally made sense but he was not known as a playwright and he wrote a huge body of work um, you know, philosophical, scientific. Um, it's kind of an inconceivable that one man could have done two enormous bodies of works. Right. That's a good point. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And also Bacon had, there's no reason for Bacon to be covered up. Um, and as far as I can tell, um, and he never said he was a, a playwright either. The Earl of Oxford was known as a playwright. Right. He had every reason to keep it quiet because he was a nobleman. He was one of from the one of the oldest families in England, the Earldom of Oxford. He was the seventeenth Earl. Uh, back then, most of the earls were newly created: the first, the second, the third at most. So he had a great family name, and he wanted to protect it. And back then, if you were, you know, spending all your time with creative writing like the Earl of Oxford, um, that was considered frivolous. It's not something you want everybody to know about. Oh, yeah, you should be working on serious matters right. of the state and stuff. Uh, yeah. Of course, of course. You should be a judge. You should be a cap- counselor to the queen. You should be a general, something like that, right? Um, not fooling around with plays and poems. So, so was, is that was one that, reason. Is there a chance that Bacon and, and him were in, in, together? Like, Seems Bacon like there's a chance they're the, brothers. Um, actually, they were related um, through their marriages. They were related, uh, Bacon and the Earl of Oxford. But no, I, I, I don't think there was any collaboration with Bacon at all. So it's, you know, to me, the plays have one voice, one man's voice. And I, I think there was only one man, the Earl of Oxford, who, who wrote the works. And um, he didn't want the world to know during his lifetime that he was the great author for the reason I mentioned. But after he died, he it should have been okay. The world should have recognized that he was the great author with no problem whatsoever. Um, but that they didn't do that for the Earl of Oxford. And that's something happened. The, that is the real question. Right. Why what happened they, then? Yeah. Because we have an example. We have an example of another courtier, Sir Philip Sidney, and he wrote a lot of creative writings. He was, at, at one time, he was the heir of the Earl of Leicester, so he's pretty high up there. And he knew everybody at court. Um, but during his lifetime, none of his creative writing was published. After he died, about five years, six, something like that, shortly after his death, his own sister, who was a countess, she printed his works called one of his works called the Arcadia, a very long kind of a novel. So there was absolutely no reason 
to, you know, not ex- not tell the world that the Earl of Oxford was the great author. Did, did you find something that they that something that happened back then that sort of kept it underground? Well, um, all I know is, is that if you look at what contemporaries wrote um, while the Earl of Oxford was alive, they, they kept mentioning that, you know, we, we can't really say your name. They would make comments about him in an indirect manner. This is what contemporaries would do. And, and when he died, nobody said anything, which was very unusual when a poet died or, or even like an important man like the Earl of Oxford, just forget about being a poet. No one said a word. So that is very suspicious. That tells me that people were afraid to talk about him. He did something. And I think it has something to do with the succession. I don't think that he was for the man who became the king, King James, after Queen Elizabeth died in 1603. And people knew it, and that's why they were afraid to even praise him or even to mention his name, because they didn't want to be considered a traitor. So I wrote an article about this in um, the Oxfordian journal called The Oxfordian, um, about how actually a contemporary play actually kind of trashed him in a way showed him as an immoral person. Of course, they didn't say his exact name. The character was called Earl, who was a lord, and um, that he he tried to have an affair with a married lady. So, I mean, that would have been, you know, very horrendous back then. So they, they, they I think, portrayed him in a bad light. So something was going on where people either didn't want to say anything, or if they did, it was negative. Is and, there a chance uh, that that like the new king didn't like him, so they like scrubbed him? He got like one. Of, he's a victim he of cancel culture. Well, um, on the outside, King James was very good to the Earl of Oxford. Um, he until he, he scrubbed him from the Shakespeare record. He continued his annuity of a thousand pounds a year that the Queen was giving him, and you know that's a lot of money back then. It was like close to a million dollars. A lot of us think that that's kind of his reward for writing the plays, the Shakespeare plays, which originally, in my opinion, were the Queen's entertainments. So um, I lost my train of thought there. But um, yes, I think that he was disparaged and people were afraid to say anything about him. But not by the king. Um, But not by the king. No. Huh. Outwardly. The king, in one instance, praised him, um, and they and he gave him his gave him his annuity. But then he died. The Earl of Oxford died a year after King James took the throne. So mysteriously, I think, I think that the Earl, if the Earl of Oxford lived longer, like maybe ten years um, longer, I think I don't think there'd be an authorship question. But it was so soon after the change in regime um, that that was made people be quiet and afraid. Do you think they killed him? I don't know. I don't know. He was only 54. And um, like haven't living the good life, you know? Well, you know, he, a few of his letters survive and um, 
he, for several years before his death, he had health issues. He mentioned about a limp, and uh, he mentioned about um, having uh, blood. Uh, I forget what they call that, um, where they'd have leeches, you know, <laughs> um, you know, treatment in that manner. Uh, so he was a bit ill toward the latter years of his life, and you know, maybe he had an illness that, that killed him. Maybe he was sad um, that the queen had passed away. You know, he. He was very close to her, so this is all speculation. Was there? Was there? What else did you find that led you towards Devere? Like, was there other things that um, really sort of put you into that camp? Well, um, like in the sonnets, it's it's so autobiographical. Like, you know, he 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 not only loved this young man, but he also was totally obsessed by a dark lady and there's several dark lady sonnets and the earl of oxford also had a dark lady in his life her name Anne vavasor when he was separated when the earl of oxford was separated from his wife he had an affair with her and she was a real you know wanton at court you know she had she was a hot lady a lot of a lot of guys courtiers were after her and her kind of playing around and him still loving her you know that pained him deeply and um you, you know you see this in the in the sonnets you know and everywhere you look every play you read it's Cyril of oxford's life you know and so it just keeps reaffirming reaffirming like for example in all's well that ends well it opens with young Bertram. His father has died, and he is his uh, now inherited an earldom. But he, because he's underage, he is now the king's ward. The exact thing happened with the Earl of Oxford. His father was uh, died when he was twelve. His son was twelve. He inherited the earldom of Oxford, but he became a ward of Queen Elizabeth. So, you know, it's another parallel. Right there, Isn't there um, a bunch of bunch of instances where he's writing, shaking the spear, and all these different ways of saying shaking the spear that you have in your book as well. Well, um, I think that he chose that spear shake, William Shakespeare, as his pseudonym because he was a champion at the joust. Ah. You know, and the the uh. the instrument is called a long spear, so he's a spear shaker, and that was. A known term back then, um, shaking your spear. Uh, it could also mean a reference to writing, you know, like moving your pen, spear shaking. Um, you know, it's a perfect pseudonym for someone like them. He he won two tournaments, and the queen gave him a reward, you know, a prize. So that's another affirming thing. So everywhere you look, it, it's affirming. Even one of the sonnets. Um, he, he says his name. Um, he says in Sonnet 76, every word doth almost tell my name. E. Vere, every, every, and his name was Edward de Vere. <laughs> so every, every word doth almost tell my name, you know. Um, and of course, all the schooling that the Earl of Oxford, you know, he was a child prodigy. 
Um, at age eight, he went to Cambridge University. Age eight, very young. And he had many tutors. Um, he, after Cambridge, he got a BA. He went to Oxford University, got a master's degree. Um, and thereafter, he went to law school. And this is all documented. Um, thereafter, um, he got married. Then he took his grand tour of Europe where he spent you know, 16 months or so uh, abroad in Italy, France. Um, I mean, he had, for all the subjects that the great author knew, it's accountable with the Earl of Oxford. And the Earl of Oxford was a known playwright, as I mentioned, and known to write anonymously. As I mentioned, so everything fits. It fits like yeah, a glove. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there any other competing theories though that people like? Because I feel like there's two. You know, there's a bunch of different camps um, that sort of don't believe the mainstream narrative. Um, a bunch. Of, is there any competing theories that? Well, you mentioned Bacon, you know, yeah. and I think there's a goodly amount of people who who subscribe to Bacon. That's fine. I mean. I'm very grateful to the Baconians, the early Baconians. They really focused on the Stratford man and they, you know, they gave great arguments. Oh, yeah, the yeah. They kind man. of they so kind of paved the way in a sense they to, paved for, the way. For, they, for a different narrative. Yeah, They wrote some wonderful books, so I have no qualms with them. I just think they have, you know, the wrong man. I don't think they even knew about him. Right. Um, uh, there's people who believe that uh, uh, Christopher Marlowe wrote the Shakespeare plays. Um, you know, he died when he was quite young in his early thirties and the Marlovians believe that he didn't really die, that he went, went to Europe and wrote plays there. And somehow they came back to England and it's a bit convoluted. I, I don't see how you can believe that when we have documents about his death, how he was murdered. Uh, they, they found them, those documents. I don't know who murdered him. The Earl of Oxford. Somebody in a tavern, I, you know, they, they, a sharp object in his eye. You know, God so he, damn. Was he was murdered. So I, I think it's hard to get beyond that when, when we have records back then. Um, and also, all you have to do is read, you know, a few passages of Shakespeare and read a few passages of Marlowe, and they're diff two different styles. Marlowe uh, had a kind of very pompous, bombastic style, um, different, a different voice than Shakespeare's voice. And there's been as many as 100 candidates, as far as I know. So, I mean, that's testament to show that, yes, many people do doubt the traditional story, that it's just, it's really unfeasible without any lifetime evidence. It's yeah. just, you, you, yeah. it's really actually a theory. They say that we have a theory but they are also a theory <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> because they have yeah. no uh, circum uh, they only have circumstantial evidence and that is after he died not during his lifetime yeah, yeah. what about the drow shout uh, portrait have you heard them pick that apart at all have you heard those theories about the the portrait how they say that that really looks like bacon but there's really weird um, weird things going on with his coat, how one half of it's backwards. Um, his right arm has the coat sleeve on backwards, like weird stuff like that. Yeah. You know, I, 
I don't really see that, you know, the problems with the costume. I mean, I do see that in the two sides are not even the kind of the, the blank space. Uh, yeah. One has like a big curve and the other one is more like a like a triangle. So I can see that as being odd. I do. Um, and but to me, the the oddest thing is not really his outfit. It's um, if you look under the ear, there's two lines there and it and the kind of wooden forehead. It to me, it's almost like they wanted it to appear like it's a mask. Yeah, and the and way the head wood, sits on the collar in a way. Yeah, and the yeah. hair is kind of weird. It looks like it's fake. Um, it could have been meant as a mask. Right, Someone right. is wearing a mask. It could be, but where they got that image, we don't know because there is no known image, uh, lifetime image. This this image was made seven years after the Stratford man had died. <laughs> and of course opposite to the image is a poem by ben johnson who said you know reader look not on his picture but his book so he's you know that's throwing another weirdness at it, like hey no this is not really his image then why did they use it you know this book was a very expensive book 36 shakespeare plays on huge pages you know um why wouldn't they not get a better image? And the image has been criticized over the centuries. It's like, why do they, why do they use that? And if you make a comparison, and I did this in my book, um, <clears throat> between another engraving made in the same year by the same engraver, they're like totally different. Oh, One wow. looks human and the other doesn't look human. Wow. So... Yes, there is definitely strange. Does it look like a reptile? Like a <laughs> I don't know about a, a reptile. Right. I, I call him a, a gentleman monster. <laughs> I think I know they a wanted, few guys like that. I think they wanted you to think that he was kind of this, you know, like Jekyll and Hyde. Savant, you know, some weird creature that was all knowing, but ugly. You know, I, I, I don't know. It's, it is definitely strange. And then, of course, when you get further into those opening pages, <clears throat> there's a dedication letter to the Earls of Pembroke and Montgomery. The Earl of Pembroke was the Earl of Oxford's son-in-law. So there's a connection right there. And the other Earl that it's dedicated to, the Earl of Pembroke, he was nearly engaged to one of Oxford's daughters. So you have a very intimate connection right off the bat to the Earl of Oxford. Then you read the, the letter, and it's supposedly, it's written by Hemmings and Condell, and those were two different actors of the period, and they enacted Shakespeare plays. But the problem is, is that the letter was not written by Hemmings and Condell. It was written by Ben Johnson. And scholars, Shakespeare scholars have acknowledged this for over 200 years. So what's with the fakery here? You know, that's uh, another oddity. And then the oddity of Hemmings and Condell writing another letter, you know, urging the reader to buy the book. Why do you, for the great Shakespeare plays, which are enormously popular, why did you, why do you need to push 
this book, you know? So I think that what they wanted to do, Ben Johnson wanted to make um, Hemings and Condal seem like they were ignorant. Who got all the money? That's a, hey, that's a great question. Because, I mean, it's all free now, but it wasn't for a while. Someone got paid. Well, that's another contradiction. Now, if you read the dedication letter, Hemings and Condal make you think that they're the ones who put up the money and edited it and collected all the plays. And yet, if you look at the very back page of the book, it said it was printed at the charges of Jaggard, Blunt, Smethick, and Aspley. <laughs> so, so there's another contradiction. So um, who paid for it? We don't know. I think the people who paid for it were the Earls of Pembroke and Montgomery. The Earl of Pembroke was one of the richest men in England at that time. So he certainly could have afforded this very expensive book. I think that even with five or six men uh, investing in this, it still would have been too much for them to come up with the money. And apparently they they printed about 1,000 copies, 750 to 1,000 copies. It would have been a fortune to make. And you have one of those copies? No. Oh, I thought you were just playing with them. There, I was going to say that's I was pretty play- cool. I'm playing with a facsimile edition. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, but yeah. Oh, uh, uh, an actual 1623 first folio would go for several million. Jesus. Wow. So you mentioned yeah. that even you mentioned they were quite expensive even back then, right? When they tried to sell them for 200 bucks each or something like that, wasn't it? Or- well, yeah. It uh, it would probably cost about a pound, um, which. You know, when uh, an average day laborer would earn about two pounds a year, that's a lot comparatively, right? So it was an expensive publication. It, it was apparently, if you believe this Shakespeare professor, they made almost no money on it. So it's just, it's inconceivable uh, that it all the money was put up by these investors. It was certainly the Earls of Pembroke and Montgomery. And they're the ones, I think, who wanted to perpetuate this myth. I mean, you have to believe it. If they paid for this, they were behind it. And I think that was political because they had great favor from King James. And I don't think they wanted any problem with Again, I think the, the plays and poems, the sonnets especially, involved the succession, that there really was another man who who should have succeeded queen elizabeth her her own child they didn't want any of that you know to boat to be rocked and i think that was behind it but and i go into detail in the last two chapters of my book of why i think that's the case that's the other paradigm that i did i didn't realize how long they've been doing comedies and tragedies and plays in like political like Making fun of politics, you know, yes. hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years ago. That that was now. Now we have Hollywood, of course, and TV and everything. But it's been going on for a lot longer than I realized. Oh yeah, even in Rome and Greece, they they had satirical plays. So yeah, it's a tradition that, that probably will keep going on till the end of time. The jesters and the, and the, so this really seems to be a turning point in that in a way where they really put this huge production together and tried to hide. 
You wrote it all, huh? Yes, yes. And it worked. But you know what? 400 years have passed. <laughs> yeah. Next year is the 400th anniversary of the first folio. This, this book right. plays. And that really started the whole myth. So, hey, it's time to look at the evidence again and say, look, it's not the Stratford man. You know, he had nothing to do with it. It was put upon him. He was dead. He, had, he knew nothing about this. Um, he was involved in the theater, yes. But as in the financial way, I think he was loaning money to the theater companies. I think he bought theater shares. And he was listed as uh, a member of an acting company. Absolutely. But being an actor, being a theater shareholder does not mean you're a writer. It's two different things. And so if we honestly look at the evidence, um, I think that people are going to know it's not the Stratford man. They're going to obviously... Many people will see the Earl of Oxford, and it's going to be a whole new world. And there's at, so much more evident, uh, research that needs to be done. And really? It's be great. I mean, right now, there's just a handful of us doing research. But when the whole world accepts this, there'll be thousands of people all around the world, and we're gonna, they're going to be coming up with great stuff. That's kind of what I was going to ask you is, is it really, as it, it seems to me like it's grown quite a bit, but it might be because we're in this podcast space and... You know, we've been looking at bacon a lot lately, so maybe it seems like it, but I feel like it's been growing. I mean, have you had like a lot of success and growth uh, over the last five or 10 years? Um, I think so. I think um, with Zoom, I think um, a lot of our, I'm a member of the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship, and I would encourage your listeners to take a look at that website. Um, we've been having our conferences online, you know, with Zoom, and I think that's brought in quite a few um new converts wow and, uh, yeah so i think i think the tide is turning it's just taking time but thank goodness for shows like yours that give give us me the opportunity to get the word out um i do this not only for the justice for the earl of oxford but also because people love many people love shakespeare they love the plays and if they had a real biography behind them, they're going to be open to a brand new world. And I, I want them to know that world. Well, what a story, right? A savant politician or savant, you know, um, guy like that who had to keep it all secret. I mean, it, it really makes for a better, a better story. A savant like I mean, autistic. Well, no, I think I think she just meant like, I mean, imagine wow. being in university at eight years old. Right. I mean, he, he's like more of like a. Child prodigy. Really. Yeah, child prodigy. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, what a story, you know, and, and he and wanted to do this creative outlet, but he couldn't do it because of his politics, you know, and right. he, he had to to make it all hit and use a pen name and have people in his corner kind of helping him hide this whole thing, you know. It's incredible. Yeah. I mean, and then some some of the sonnets, Shakespeare's sonnets, like Sonnet 81, um, he's talking to the fair youth and he's saying, your name from hence immortal life shall have. Though I, once gone, to all the world must die. Wow, yeah, there it is. I mean, that's... that's Wasn't there you. something going on with the cover to the sonnets? 
um, the uh, yeah, a, the a bunch of secret math. A bunch of, isn't there a bunch of secret math on that cover? Yeah, I mean, Alan Green. Uh, yeah. Alan Green tried to show all these sacred pyramid measurements and stuff on there from from the letters and the angles and stuff. Pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, there are like three triangles. The way the um, the uh, pages are set up. I mean, the uh, lines are kind of set up in three triangles. Um, one with four lines, one with two, and one with six. And so. Some people think that that's a code. I'm not really that much into codes like that. <laughs> but if if you do four words, then two words, then six words, if you do it all in a line, it seems to say these sonnets by Evier. Wow. You could read it that way. But again, I'm... I'm not big on the cryptograms. I, I think that we have so much evidence in the Earl of Oxford's uh, favor that we, you know, we don't really need to go that far. Was, um, even, was he a Rosicrucian or anything like that? Or was he, was he in any of those secret societies that you know of? Or? I don't, there, I don't think there's any evidence of it. Yeah. He was, he, he knew uh, John D who I believe was in that, camp yeah my six am i six oh there's a yeah yeah john d that goes deep he he may have he may have known that but i don't think he was at all um actually there's many um accounts of him that you know toward the end of his life that he was a very devout christian very religious so i i don't know i think i don't think that was the case for him being involved in Rosicrucian stuff. Yeah. yeah. Huh. I was just texting with Alan a few weeks ago about coming back on the show. So I'm, I'm more yeah. interested to do that now and see where he's ended up. And I want to like, I'd like to reevaluate that sonnets cover thing because I thought there was all sorts of stuff going on on there. And uh, I can't really remember. It was a long time ago, like 300 episodes. Mm-hmm. My goodness. It's, we've had that many. Wow. We've had like... Fucking including almost 700. both shows, probably seven hundred. Yeah, yeah. Including both wow, shows. congratulations! It's yeah, we've learned a lot along the way. I mean, it's been. Oh, a I can journey. imagine. Yeah. I mostly yeah. crack jokes. <laughs> but uh, oh well, where can uh, where can our listeners track you down? Do you have social media or anything like that, or where can I, they get their yeah, hands on the book? I'm not, I'm not so much into that, but um, I have a website, ShakespeareSuppressed.com. They can email me. Um, you can buy it through the website, or you can go to Amazon.com. And I would encourage people to ask their public library to buy it. You know, yeah, that's you, a great sometimes idea. Sometimes you don't have to buy it yourself. You just you go on my website. You can see the ISBN number, and you can ask your library to buy it. That's a great idea. Yeah, you have your table of contents on there on your website and everything. Yeah, and yes. uh, it is quite a, it is quite a resource. I mean, you go into so much detail with it. It's it's quite amazing. Yeah, I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. It so took me almost really... seven years. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Labor of love. Yeah. So what do you plan on doing next? Are you doing any uh, besides trying to continue getting this message out? Is there anything else you're doing? Any other books or articles or um, I'm, uh, I'm, events? Or? I'm writing an article for a journal that should be published next year. Um, and I'm, I'm working on another book. 
um, has to do with the art world and Shakespeare. When you say there's more research to be done on the Devere side of things, like what what are some of the things that you would like if you had all the resources you could in the world and you had you know a whole bunch of researchers at your beck and call, what would be some of the things you do? Is there more original works from Devere that you could dig up or how how would you go about that? Well, what I would do, my strategy would be to see all the people that he knew. He knew many people. Right. And so I would just go one by one and see if there's any archives, any letters um, that exist for, you know, say, uh, John. The people he, yeah, or the John people he met in Italy or wherever, like all yeah. his travels, all that, like all trying to dig up get, all that Get stuff. that list and then yeah. one by one see if they left behind anything. And there right. could very well be. And oh, yeah. there might be a letter from the Earl of Oxford. And in that letter, there might be some evidence that would connect him. Like, uh, thank you. I thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed Hamlet, you know, <laughs> or yeah, something well, like, who knows? And imagine a guy like that traveling around Europe. He's probably visiting all the royalty in Italy and uh, in France and all the, all those years. I mean, he's not just traveling around like, uh, you know, hosteling it. I mean, he's probably staying at all the palaces, right? I mean, yeah. imagine all the people he's meeting along the way. You're totally right. And in fact, um, recently, um, a uh, great uh, English professor who was on our side, um, <laughs> he, he went to uh, Italy and he found a document in Venice that was written in Venice of the Earl of Oxford wanting to see uh, a certain room in the Doge's palace. And the reason he wanted to, because it was filled with art. He was totally into art. And in fact, several, uh, like, for example, his long poem, Venus and Adonis, it, he describes a, a painting by Titian in there. That's just one example. But yes, I mean, he, here he found just one little document. If we had many people in Italy researching all the archives there, because we know where he went, we're, we're going to find all sorts of new stuff. Yeah, but right yeah, now we're so limited, we're just a tiny, tiny group. But it's good to know that there's possibilities there for more. Oh, yeah. there's lots of lots of opportunity. People love mysteries, man. People love this subject. So, yeah, and they can be the first to find who knows the smoking gun. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, a portion of a play manuscript in the Earl of Oxford's handwriting. We got to get this on 4chan. They'll figure it out. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> the weaponized autism of the internet. Yeah. Right on. Well, thank you for coming on the show, Catherine. This has been great. Thank we you, always Darren. love chatting Shakespeare around here. And uh, when that next book comes out, you'll have to let us know. I sure will. Thanks. Thank you so much. See you later. Bye-bye. And that was our chat with Catherine Chijan. What'd you think, buddy? Yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was good. I thought it was fun. I mean... I like how sure she is in, in her uh, assessment, but I still can't get over, dude, some of the stuff. Like, even they said there's 157 letters on the page, on the front page of 1623, and even 1623 uh, reverts to, they say, B-A-C. Oh, is this just a well, this is like, this is the Rosicrucian symbolism from uh, 100 years ago, dude. I mean, not like, the Gematria stuff where they just seem to be able to make it say whatever. 
No, well, it's it is similar. Yeah, it's uh, it's cryptograph, right? So they're saying all the letters correspond to numbers, and when you do that, like even sixteen three twenty three comes out as bacon. But then they start picking, like, well, that's not one and six; that's sixteen, and you yeah, know, I yeah. just it's that. I know, I know, but <laughs> I know, and they're talking about all the paragraphs and the, how they have bacon in the paragraphs and the paginations, and yeah, so yeah. Big thanks to Catherine for coming on the show. Big thanks to you guys for listening. Even bigger thanks if you're a supporter, grammarica.ca slash support. Uh, head over to grammarica.ca, check out the tours, the audiobooks, all that stuff. Adultbrain.ca, courses, books, grammarica.ca slash chats for the chats. Spam, gram, grammarica.com. Other than that, we love you guys. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Teach me all your secrets to get a good handle on a better way. How does one get out of bed every day in the throes of the apocalypse? Should I bury my head in the sand or sabotage their evil plan? I feel really trapped, an ant burned by a magnifying glass. It's all a little bit too convenient, all the evidence went up in flames. These fraudster scammers belong in the slammer My friend best give up their names Should I call on militia man Or pass out a petition pen I feel really trapped An ant burned by a magnifying glass I don't know what y'all been told But I got a soul made out of gold Sound off, one, two, sound off Three, four, cadence count. One, two, a three, four. Some time ago, a crazy dream came to me. I dreamt I was walking into World War Three. As prophetic as humanity, as aching bones, as frantic animals. Sophia wrote it down, built an ark. Now she floats it down the river in the dark. As Floats it down a river dark I can't even hear my own thoughts for the life of me Over the din of a bruised and broken culture The media spins and splatters and spins and clatters And I cringe because it's psychological warfare Don't you feel yourself getting really mad? How did we let it get this bad? Don't you feel really trapped? Like a brain in a vet to close Pandora's box but sirens are singing me off a cliff I'm looking to hitchhike to Shangri-La over yonder Sophia would you give me a lift hopped out of the Hegelian rebellion say goodbye to all you Machiavellians let evil destroy itself I'm bound for Shangri-La Shangri-La My dream if I could be in yours As prophetic as morning doves As groundhogs As falling stars above So 
an arc Now we're floating it down a river dark As prophetic as white wolves As butterflies As rainbows Sophia sings it now We built a plane Now we're taking flight above a river bright La 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 shangri 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 la la